Hello again, dear listener. This, I can confirm, is the start of the show. Welcome to Find, a previously recorded evening of storytelling and otherwise. This episode took place on November 26, 2018, at the Lido, which is on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, or Vancouver, BC. You'll be hearing from some of the excellent lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Danica Thibault, Asia Moore, Justin Descharmes, and Andrea Warner. And throughout the episode, you'll hear music from Hello Blue Roses, who you can find on iTunes and Bandcamp. And if you're not familiar, I highly suggest checking them out. The song we started the show with today is called Pretty Penny, and it's from their most recent album, Trade Winds. And we have a live show at the Lido coming up on January 28th, 2019, that you can come and check out if you like. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a nice one. That's my hunch. It's also our second anniversary show. Yeah, should be a should be a special time. For more info on all of that, go to afineshow.com or follow us on the social medias at a fine show. All right, and I am your host, Colna Wiki. Let's get on with it. Enjoy the show. Up first, we have wonderful comedian and human Danica Tebow. She started doing stand-up because she needed something interesting to put in her Tinder bio below. Loves tacos and rosé. Here's Danica. God, there's so many hot people here. <laughs> Instead of imagining you guys in your underwear, I'm just going to imagine that you're ugly. <laughs> um, okay, well, I just wanted to kick things off by kind of apologizing for the pitch of my voice. Um, my whole life, I thought it was like fun, quirky, she's a girl's girl. And then last week, the comic who went up after me said my voice sounded like everyone's impression of their girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so this whole set will sound like a spoken scream, and that's okay. <laughs> um, everyone hear about the fires in California? Yeah, really scary. Me and my friends would never survive a forest fire. Like, once our hotel was on fire, and the first thing anyone said was like, shit, 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 what are you guys wearing? <laughs> Seriously, everyone's going to be there. Would it be too on the nose to do like a smoky eye? <laughs> yeah, we're so dumb. Um, but like we're millennial dumb. <laughs> I have a $30,000 liberal arts degree, but I don't know how to mail a letter. <laughs> the last time I mailed a letter was 1999 and I definitely fucked it up because that year Santa got me a World Vision gift card. <laughs> It was, yeah, a tough year. Uh, I just got back from New York. Have you guys heard of it? Um, They say you have to take a trip with someone to know if the relationship's going to work out. Uh, So, yeah, I'm dumping my mom. 
Okay, you find all those little quirks that you hate about each other. Like, I'm a bitch in the morning, evening, and night. Uh, but my mom texts with one finger. <laughs> Can you imagine what that was like for me? No. I was only in New York for seven days. And while I was there, two guys I've hooked up with from Vancouver were also in town. Now, I don't remember a lot about math, but according to the theory of probability, I'm a hoe. <laughs> My teachers were right. I do use math everywhere I go. Um, is, any <laughs> is anyone single? Okay, well, sorry, I have a boyfriend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just kidding, I'm so, so single. Like, when I wear a boyfriend jean, it's cultural appropriation. <laughs> Okay. I did get dumped earlier this year. Thank you so much. Um, I thought I was going to handle it like Julia Roberts and eat, pray, love. But it's been more like eat, eat, sex with strangers. Um, in the movie, she travels the world and like discovers herself. The only thing I've discovered is more ways to combine carbs and cheese. Okay, she learned she had it in her to love again. I learned I had it in me to melt feta on shreddies. <laughs> I did see it coming though, because I'm really good at reading body language or whatever. And when we first started dating, he was doing this weird thing with his mouth. Um, it was like, I am not ready for a relationship. <laughs> I have been dating, um, and it's not going well. Uh, <laughs> it could be super chill if you guys were like, what? <laughs> like, act shocked here. Um, <laughs> but no, I've been dating the type of 20-something guy that's just like bad ideas attached to an amazing metabolism. <laughs> um, <laughs> last week, I went on a date with a guy who truly did not ask a single question about me. <laughs> so you know what? I got up and I left. Right after I stayed five more hours, I'm fucked up. <laughs> Feminism can look like anything. <laughs> um, just to give you guys a taste of his personality, I will open our texts and scroll. And when you guys say stop, I'll read the first thing I see. Boats are the shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you guys, this is the state of things. I know I should just go for a guy who's genuinely interested in me, but when a guy likes me, I'm like, okay, that's a red flag. <laughs> um, I do like being single, though. My favorite part about being single is being able to use the excuse, it's just cheaper to eat out than to cook for one, <laughs> based on no math. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was like well how much do you spend when you buy groceries and I was like I've never done that <laughs> okay whenever someone in a long-term relation gets on my back about spending too much on food I break it down one ten dollar lunch five times a week is still all I have <laughs> um, <laughs> whenever my parents ask why I'm still single 
I use the classic, I'm just too busy for a relationship, <laughs> which never works because I still use their Netflix account. <laughs> I'm like, I'm too busy. Netflix is like, last week she watched 41 hours of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> In the time I've spent watching Grey's Anatomy, I could have met someone and become an actual doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love shows, and I love romantic comedies, except for How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. It's like, I've literally done it in one. <laughs> and not to brag, but I wasn't even trying. <laughs> okay. But it's hard to meet people, especially in Vancouver. When I first moved here, everyone was like, you got to join things. Uh, but the problem with that is the only people you meet when you join things are the type of people who join things. <laughs> okay? And you don't want to fall into a bad crowd. Do you know how many innocent people get tangled up in intramural sports? <sighs> the only good part about being an adult is not having to play organized sports, okay? <laughs> For a lot of, like, middle-class suburban kids, PTSD does stem for post-traumatic soccer disorder. <laughs> In the 10 years my parents forced me to play soccer, I scored one goal. <laughs> yeah, the whole team, like, freaked out because it was on our own net. <laughs> um, I get that they were just putting me in sports to keep me out of drugs, but wouldn't you rather have the town's most fucked up kid than the team's most improved? <laughs> so moral of the story, it's hard to meet people in Vancouver. I entered the dating scene here so optimistic. I was like, I'm going to find a guy with a top job. Two months in, I was like, I'm going to find a guy with a top sheet. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> And here I am, one year in, and yesterday I thought to myself, you know what? Boats are the shit. <laughs> That's over me. Thanks, guys. Up next is Asia Moore. She's air dominant in her first book of poetry, Hot Wheel, came out this fall with Metatron Press. You can buy it online at metatron.press. Here's Asia. seen me here in July. I think I was pretty funny that night. <laughs> I'm not going to do that tonight. That was cancer season. This is not. <laughs> Instead of being funny, I just dressed up. Um, I'm not going to read what I read that night because it was a bummer. Not that I'm not going to be a bummer. <laughs> um, I... One thing that's different between then and now is that now I have a book. And <laughs> yeah, it's fucking sick. Um, but you can't buy it here because that would require me to have the money to buy it first and then resell it. And I don't have that money. Um, but you can get it at Pulp Fiction or online. And they'll mail it right to your house. You don't even have to go like outside. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read two pieces from my book. And one new piece. Um, 
Thank you. <laughs> um, so bright. You <laughs> put your mouth on the mic. Sorry, everyone, who's coming up here after me. Um, and thanks, Cole, for having me again. I know that it might feel like being a broken record to book the same person a lot of times. <clears throat> so this piece is called um, Unemployable. That's me. <laughs> it's so dark up here. <laughs> it was opulent not to go and be told about it later. A fake still delivers. How industrious. I'm absent trying to be a good artist. I forget to live a little. I forget to love through the poem, despite what's happened, which is doubly embarrassing, because it's me who's always going on about, love is a verb, you fake radical. <laughs> Try writing about yourself in the third person. Asia on the page is always on the page for someone else, even when it doesn't seem like it, especially so in that case. I want her to stop pretending not to care, but I also want to stop caring. On the phone, I said, thank you. This has been more nourishing than writing a poem. I surprised myself. I thought Adorno wrote, all art is just properly sublimated rage. But when I double checked, it was, talent is perhaps nothing more than successfully sublimated rage. Makes sense. I have a lot of anger but I'm learning that art requires more, maybe even its opposite. Which is not to say remove it. Please show me all your rage. I want to hold it, and then, and then, and then. On the phone I said, accomplishments are tricky. The sirens, by then, were nothing. An accomplishment doesn't just fix everything. I achieve whatever. I memorized the change you get when you give me a five. Once, I worked across from the courthouse. I was giving this man his 185 back. The coins slipped through his fingers into his coffee. He squealed like a pig. I had to stop myself from using feminized examples here. I was like, no problem. I'll replace it, but I can barely hold the pot. When some thoughts come, I shake. I write with the body now. Funny how we put money everywhere but in our mouths. So you do know it's dirty. You probably put money in your asshole. I don't say anything. Instead, I go to the bathroom, put my hands inside myself, don't wash them. Um, I, I launched my book a couple weeks ago, and then a, a, like a bunch of people were like, why didn't you read for longer? Why did you read only two poems? So I might actually try to read a few more tonight, if that's all right. Um, this one's called McDonald's. It begins with um, a quote um, from Louise Gluck, which is, the beloved doesn't need to live. This is the worst posture. <laughs> I'm having this big, ugly coffee. 
This is my jaw and my hands and nothing. When the skin blisters, I know I'm working. I walk to the store, hoping to feed and return to myself, picking out crushed tomatoes beneath the bleach. Have you considered dying? I need to do something to prove I'm part of this world of actions and reactions. Yesterday, I bought Sylvia for a jock. I inscribed it, I suspect you really feel. I get excited when I want to die. I commit to gestures. Some animals roll over and reveal their stomachs. It means, look how close I'll let you get to my most irreplaceable organs. The intestines, beheld, become a human hand and bring a famine. Last time I tried to kill myself, my parents took me to dinner. With money, I can pay for things that don't disappoint. When I don't want to die, it's because of your unfailing nature. Water metaphors are lazy, but when I say I'm drowning, I'm drowning. Once a week, I can't see the future. It's kind of nice. Last night, I got some good advice. Don't fuck anyone who calls you a prophet. I like delusions where I can see them, undo them. Otherwise, I'm just whatever the fuck you want when you want it. I don't have a real body that needs to rest or eat or be appreciated. I must not have a brain or lungs or eyes or a spine. That last one, at least, is true. I let you let me beg. Fantasy is necessarily a dehumanizing process. In yours, I don't have a nervous system. It's essential that I can't feel anything. In yours, I definitely don't have a heart or its tendency to fold. I stroke my collarbone. It healed okay, just please don't touch me there. I keep trying to write a poem that doesn't need the last word, by which I mean I keep trying to be a person who doesn't need the last word, soaking up the gravy with what's left gleaming. Um, thank you. I'm just going to read this little poem. I've never read it um, before, and I think it's important to read new shit. <laughs> yeah, it's called The Distance is Unbelievable. The protagonist must feel something during the rape. She only feels the wall, which is a texture, not a feeling. I wrote that after I was in a workshop and I submitted something where there was an assault in it and everyone in the workshop was like, that wasn't very believable. And I was like, damn, like every time you write about assault, everyone's like, give us more. And every time you speak about it, they're like, shut the fuck up. True. Um, okay, this is funner. Um, this I wrote uh, very recently, um, and I wrote it after I was doing copywriting work, and that required me to do, like, I guess, quote-unquote research that I wouldn't normally be doing, and then I just, like, found all this super cool shit on the internet, like, <laughs> like cool facts and shit that I, 
like would never have seen otherwise. And I was like, damn, the real poetry was there all along. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I tried to like write something where I could incorporate those facts. It's discount night at the sauna. I'm rolling old skin and dirt off my thighs, shins, shoulders, chest, palms, cheeks, heels, arch and sink. It can take more than 500 years to form two centimeters of healthy topsoil. <laughs> I rub mine off. Men stare. We inhabit a crucial ecosystem nonetheless. Plowing and tilling soil is like bulldozing a human city. If you think of the planet as one giant emergent superorganism, the soil is akin to the skin of the earth. <laughs> I love that analogy, but it fails to account for the conversion of skin into luxury item. Skin as most extractable resource. Skin as landscape replenishing itself with less and less success. To preserve its softness, always flay the snake alive. I force myself to molt. I drag my nails through the slick of me and collect. In America, there were monuments everywhere. I watched the sun play at their feet. I watched it go down too, I just didn't get picked. You just have to trust me on this one. Oxygen is the ash that spools from stars. Dead skin as adornment, its removal as awaited interruption, the earth reduced to a vault of unmodern longing. A patch of dirt to watch. I take the scenic route and crave omniscience. Fruit ripens on the ledge. Something godly happens when care lapses into surveillance. Unlike animals, plants can't migrate when they are threatened. The mice in the experiment reach a tipping point and instinctual behavior is lost. Unlike animals, plants can't party when they are threatened. In New York, I had a terrific nightmare about remaining gentle. It was a relief to continue. They still have pennies in America. I sat by the Hudson and thought about breaking a dollar into a hundred pieces. Wealth increases visually. Over two-thirds of people report feeling phantom vibrations from their inactive devices. To be fair, on the West Coast, we're expecting the big one any second now, although statistically it is not the movement of the earth, but the collapse of man-made structures on its surface that causes the most fatalities. I still waste time getting jealous of human bodies in this market of much greater delicacies. The average person touches their phone 2,600 times a day. I don't think I could touch another person that much if I had my whole life. Thank you. Now we have Justin Descharmes, 
a Métis dancer, filmmaker, and writer. He's currently co-editing Hustling Verse, an anthology of sex workers' poetry with Amber Dawn, and that's set to be published by Arsenal Pulp Press in the fall of 2019. He's passionate about jigging, radicalizing indigenous, quote, Canadian, end quote, cinema, and writing bad poetry about people that broke his heart and the ones that paid to do so. Here's Justin. I should warn everybody here, I'm not very funny. Um, so shit's about to get really gay and really sad. So settle in. I was actually pumped that Asia was on the lineup because I was like, I'm not going to be the only one. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to read some poetry for you guys. Um, now, I am a, I'm kind of a filmmaker pretending to be a poet. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to go into detail about what that means, but uh, <laughs> that's just sort of how I've been identifying um, when I read work. I have a full thing here, and I'm just going to read whatever comes to me, because that's how we're going to go. Um, yeah. So this first piece is called, I'm just going to start off. This is probably the funniest thing I've ever written. This is a list poem, and it's called Dialogue I Wrote in Attempted Screenplays. Quote, well, I don't know, Diane. Maybe this time he won't fall asleep during Breaking the Waves. End quote. A drunk girl at a frat party. If anybody's ever seen that movie, that might be funny for you. I don't know. Uh, quote, yeah, man, but Reba was quality television. End quote. I'm a pretty big Reba fan. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've resented my mother. A screenplay loosely based on my life. <laughs> uh, Dad isn't home right now. A uh, line from the same screenplay. Told you I was going to get sick. Um, so as Cole mentioned, I'm currently co-editing an anthology with Amber Dawn um, called Hustling Verse, and it is an anthology of sex workers' poetry. Uh, it'll be out uh, next September. Uh, I can't fucking wait for it to be like a thing that people can hold and like read. Um, this is Sex Worker Wisdom. It's a chapbook that Amber Dawn had created um, out of Pace Society. It's a collection of uh, poetry and prose by Vancouver-based uh, sex workers. And I had a few pieces in here under a pseudonym, and I'm going to read one of them for y'all right now. So this is called Meet Me by Mars. Um, Meet Me by Mars, question mark. Quote, $100 to suck you off, end quote. Meet me by Mars, question mark. Quote, if you're hot, sex work comes to you in concrete metropolitan cities, end quote. Meet me by Mars. The request is, quote, get naked immediately after the door locks. Meet me by Mars. Don't comment on the apartment or the view. Meet me by Mars. I demand cash up front, he says sex first. Where the fuck is Mars? If I had known he lived in the penthouse, maybe I'd have asked for more. Uh, so yeah, you can buy this online, Pay Society's website, or you can buy it, I think it's Spartacus Books. I'm not sure if they still have copies. Uh, and all the money goes to Pace Society, which is a really good organization in Vancouver that is just super fucking there for workers of any um, 
in nature. Yeah. Um, so this is called, if I can get to it, this is called The Boy With Hands Like Mine. There's a boy with hands like mine that I can let inside of me without him drowning in the deep sea that is my insides. He doesn't need to swim much. He stands tall on the pedestal I've built for him, a pedestal of broken promises and unresolved traumas. In my mind, I write down everything he did that made me cry, and I forget it because I remember the way he bit my lip. Cursed to the ceiling, I am your decolonial love. And in the end, after all that's happened between us, it's worth it. Because is there anything else we can learn about suffering? Uh, this is called Tell Me What You Know About Dreaming. Um, so this is a glossa that I wrote, and I read this pretty much every time I'm asked to read in public because it's probably the only thing that I've ever written that I think is like good. <laughs> um, but I can't publish it anywhere because I'm quoting Kid Cudi, uh, and nobody wants to deal with that legality. So yeah, <laughs> tell me what you know about dreaming. I'm gonna miss your forearms. Fist flexed, zero fucks given to anyone who thinks they know our situation better than either of us losers who dreamt it work out. Tell me what you know about dreaming. I'm going to miss your privilege. Mama make money just to race back to the tit and milk more trips, tips, and unsolicited body shaming when in the end you ain't really know about nothing. I'm going to miss the taking giving gay glory trophies out to all the people who I am just too much for, because man did they dodge a bullet, not following me on the pursuit of happiness. And I know I'm gonna miss you the most, because out of anyone, you were the only one who looked at me, both tough edges, scared cries, and maybe momentary bliss is all I deserve. At least I know that I'll be fine once I get it, I'll be good. Right. These are two things that I'm currently, I, they're not done by any means, but I promised uh, Yonina that I'd read them in some form because she thinks that it's a good idea. <laughs> so this is called, I don't fucking know what this is called. I transform for pay. The boy I become is the boy who holds space in my dreams. Bought, not bothered with knowing how to explain himself or apologizing for things he cannot control. Cool, calm, collected, the ideal, rent this boy at times. His bones ache from the pressure that is transforming people while transformed. He remembers this body is medicine, curing confused white men who think that I need them more than they need me. How do you distinguish love from sex, he asks. I tell him, sex fills me up, and love reminds me when it's okay to be empty. Now this, thank you. 
This is the last thing I'm going to read, and it's like, I don't fucking know. I'm just going to go for it. Um, yeah, I guess trigger warning. Actually, fuck it. No, I don't know. I, that, that's bad. This is recorded. God. Ooh. <laughs> All right, let's avoid, let's pretend that didn't happen. Uh, so this is called, this is the last piece I'm going to read for y'all. This is called A Bad Colonial Day, or A Lesson in Subversion. I wait for the 20 bus on Hastings Street when my phone vibrates, interrupting a playlist titled Songs That Make Me Want to Die. The nurse from Life Labs tells me that someone I've been with recently has tested positive for HIV. You should get tested immediately, she says. I get on the 20 bus and head to the SkyTrain, taking me to a job that I hate, but a job that I need. I can't be corporate today. I call in sick, and I don't mince words when I tell the assistant retail manager, who, by the way, hated her job, uh, the truth. And she says stupidly, you could, like, die. Uh, I roll my eyes and choke on my truth because I'm in no shape or form about to lecture this fashion girl about the realties of HIV in this day and age. My last visit to the clinic, the nurses had trouble taking my blood um, because apparently I didn't drink enough water. The white ladies slapped my arm over and over again saying, your veins don't want to talk to us. I call my roommate at the time to see if she's working on the drive so she can bring me water. What kind of Indian doesn't carry around a canteen, she joked. I hustle to the nearest Express News and try and search for some water. And of fucking course, the only bottle they have available is Nesty. I shove one inside my imaginative tote bag and I leave for the clinic because I refuse to pay for it. That's a lesson in subversion, right? <laughs> Anyways, thanks for indulging me. Our final performer of the evening was Andrea Warner, the author of the new book, Buffy St. Marie, The Authorized Biography, and the 2015 book, We Oughta Know, How Four Women Ruled the 90s and Changed Canadian Music, from Eternal Cavalier Press in 2015. A freelance writer, Andrea is also an associate producer at CBC Music, a theater critic at the Georgia Straits, a radio columnist, and co-host of the weekly podcast, Pop This, Pop Culture, Art, and Feminism Make Her Happy. Here's Andrea. for butts, <laughs> which is exciting, but I'm not going to use it. Um, I'm just really proud of the cover, even though I had nothing to do with it. And I think the book is really beautiful. Will Brown designed the cover. He's here from, or he's from Vancouver. I don't think he's here tonight, but it's, it's quite lovely, and I'm proud of it. So this is why I display it, because I read from paper instead. Um, <laughs> You're such nice, generous clappers. Um, thank you so much, Cole, and thank you to everybody who has, has read and performed so far. This is, what a beautiful group of people. Um, I'm going to read with the light on the paper and stand awkwardly aside. 
Uh, this is from chapter four, uh, It's My Way. It's My Way, Buffy St. Marie's 1964 debut album was a creative triumph, but the record wasn't a huge commercial success. It sold well, but didn't chart. And it didn't make St. Marie a household name. However, it did catapult her to a level of success that made her enough money to ensure a lifetime of relative freedom and cemented her position as one of the most important folk songwriters of the 1960s, even if she wasn't the most famous. With Universal Soldier, Now That the Buffalo's Gone, Codine, and the title track, It's My Way, was a bonafide triumph. And St. Marie kind of hated it. I was just heartbroken with my first album, she says, but it sold and it's still selling, so maybe I shouldn't have an opinion, I guess. St. Marie had no say in the process of selecting which takes Vanguard Records used, but she believes that if she'd been consulted, it would have been a better record, one that was in tune, beautiful as well as tragic. They were going for, if it bleeds, it leads, and they wanted it to sound like I was bleeding, she says. I can't get anybody to agree with me on this point, and most people will just say, no, no, no. There's a cruel irony to the fact that the album is so decisively titled, and yet St. Marie felt so excluded from the decision-making process. This background doesn't diminish the importance of It's My Way. If anything, it reaffirms the challenges facing many new artists, particularly a racialized young woman who wanted to make a brilliant, bold, utterly confident debut. The only thing that matters to the business side of show business is money, St. Marie says. If it sells, it doesn't matter. It can be a turd in the basket. I wish that I'd been able to choose the takes because Vanguard had a certain perception of me, I think, and they really wanted to rub it in. In my first couple of records, whoever was choosing the takes wanted me to sound like I was old and dying. I think they imagined that I was a junkie, or they probably thought that I was going to be a young casualty. It's possible that Vanguard thought it was best to steer hard into the harsh tragedy of Codine without understanding the real hell St. Marie experienced in order to write it. Codine was written in despair, but also in anger. Not the explosive, fiery kind that burns up and burns out, nor is it the kind of anger that scorches the earth necessary for regrowth and renewal. Codine conveyed something deeper. It was world-weary and from the bone, laden with exhaustion and frustration and the, rep the resentment that comes from decades of survival and trauma, oppression and violation. As St. Marie sang it, it's not surprising that some of the people at the record label may have thought they were dealing with a young person active in her addiction. She was 23 when she first recorded the song, but she sounds 90 in some parts. Even though there's a performative element to the original 1964 recording, the wildness of her vulnerability and her broken howls are chilling. The song comes from St. Marie's brief addiction to opioids. I was assaulted in the 60s. Well, I think of it as assault by a doctor, St. Marie says. It was the only time I've been involved with opiates. I was given them against my will by a doctor who later went to jail for turning young women out into prostitutes. He went to jail, but not because of me, 
I heard about it later. The opiates were administered to supposedly help manage an ongoing chronic uh, bronchial infection. In Florida, a clinic doctor prescribed her shots and pills that St. Marie thought were vitamin B12 and antibiotics. She received the shots for a few weeks, then she set out to drive to Atlanta with some friends. She wasn't feeling well and figured she was still sick, so she stopped at a drugstore to get a refill. The pharmacist looked at the prescription and told her that he didn't think she was sick. She was strung out and going through withdrawal. She was stunned, and then the days that followed, she continued to struggle. It was hell, she remembers, and a shocking violation of consent. The doctor prescribed the opiates without telling her what they were, and she alleges that he did this to her on purpose and for personal gain, hoping to get her and other young women addicted so he could exploit them. There's a pained authenticity in the earthquake of her voice as she sings Codine, the aftershocks of her vibrato almost swallowing words whole as she bellows, and it's real, one more time. Yet Codine wasn't meant, as some critics interpreted it, as a contribution to the anti-hippie, anti-drug, reefer madness panic song canon. She wrote it as a means of processing her experience and offering a personal warning that there was nothing glamorous or rock and roll or cool about addiction. Some of her peers laughed at the notion of being addicted to something as tame as codeine, but an opiate is an opiate and there are deadly consequences to its addictiveness as well as its relative availability. As St. Marie's fame grew and she attracted new audiences, she did take full advantage of the airplane tickets that could bring her to indigenous areas and communities, and she often built in time to visit the Piapots, her family, and meet other young indigenous activists wherever she'd play. She consciously capitalized on the success of It's My Way to bring attention to indigenous people and talk about broken treaties, exploitation, unfair treatment, and genocide. And she knew only too well that while she was using her privilege and success to talk about indigenous rights, other musicians, mostly men, were recording her songs and turning them into hits. St. Marie had been singing Universal Soldier for a few years, and it featured prominently on the track list for It's My Way. The Highwaymen had recorded it too, but the song didn't become a hit until 1965, but not for Buffy St. Marie. Folk singer Donovan Phillips Leach, who recorded as Donovan, started performing in 1964, hyped sometimes as the British Bob Dylan. Donovan heard St. Marie sing Universal Soldier live in London, England, and decided to cover it. He released his version in 1965, and it charted both in the UK at number five and in the US. Suddenly, everyone was talking about Universal Soldier as if Donovan had written it. When he covered Codine shortly thereafter, St. Marie's authorship was erased yet again. To this day, there are numerous websites that credit him as the songwriter, and it's blatant sexism that 50 years later, this is still a common misconception. I still have people insist that Donovan wrote Universal Soldier and Codine, St. Marie says. I've had people actually confront me about it. Donovan's success could be attributed to the inherent authority that society gives to men's words, the weight they carry, 
unlike women who apparently speak in dandelion fluff and helium balloons, not bricks of gold. St. Marie's songwriting, her infiltration of the boys club mentality of show business and the folk music scene precedes the women's liberation movement by a number of years. While this isn't an issue unique to St. Marie and Donovan, it's easy to identify two major ways in which he has been lauded by the music industry while St. Marie's contributions have been ignored. In 2012, Donovan was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And in 2014, he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, neither of which have recognized St. Marie. It's even more galling, considering how hard St. Marie had to work to get the rights back to Universal Soldier. One night at the Gaslight in New York City, St. Marie signed away her publishing rights to the song for $1. In John Einerson's book, Four Strong Winds, Ian and Sylvia, St. Marie recalls that it was the night the highwaymen heard her perform Universal Soldier for the first time. She got off stage and went to join them, and they told her they planned to record her song. They asked her who the publisher was, and she responded, what's that? Pianist and musical supervisor, Elmer Jared Gordon, was sitting with them and offered to help, drawing up a contract on the spot. She signed away the rights to Universal Soldier, happy that somebody was going to help spread its message to an audience she never felt she would reach. I didn't know what I was doing, St. Marie sighs. Basically, I had already made up my mind that I was okay as a loner. I was never going to be part of a group. I was never going to have a big career in show business. It would take Buffy St. Marie 10 years and $25,000 to buy back the rights to Universal Soldier. Thank you. All right, that's it. This is the end of the show. Thanks again to all the storytellers. Hello, Blue Roses. The Lido for having us. Matt Crisco for recording us. No Fun Radio for playing us. And you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with Hello, Blue Roses. Market of your own mind. <laughs>